0: It's a little dangerous to have your big sister introduce you. I want to thank you for that introduction, Kirsty, both for what you said and for what you didn't say. <laughs> of course, she knew I would get the last word. I spoke second, so that may have restrained her. Have you been watching the television coverage of the last few days? About the Queen's funeral. I think everybody's been seeing that in great detail. It is powerful stuff. It's presented in a very impressive way. I was especially moved by the service in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, this church where the great reformer John Knox spoke. And the service itself was very powerful. With lots of pageantry, uh, beautiful things going on. It was awe inspiring. It was majestic. It was solemn. And I kept thinking about all the texts that were being read powerful texts about Jesus and the resurrection that all sorts of people who never go to church were hearing. And of course, Monday we'll have the. Uh, Highlight of all of these uh, events in Westminster Abbey. This morning I think about St. Giles and I think about Crestline Seventh day Adventist Church. We're little known to the world. There are few of us. We're not on TV. But I think what we have here in this church with this small group of believers, is a gateway to heaven. And when you celebrate your 107 years on October 22, you need to remember that, despite the appearances, this is a place where things of eternal significance happen. According to the Gospel of Mark, And you can find this in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, I tell you this. There are some of those standing here who will not taste death till they've seen the kingdom of heaven already come in power. And then in the very next verse, Mark begins telling a very strange story the mountaintop episode that we call the Transfiguration of Jesus. I don't believe I've ever heard a sermon on this subject. Have you? Perhaps we're not quite sure what to make of the story. The strange and glorious light of this mountaintop may make us uneasy. And so we stick with more familiar miracles, less puzzling reports. Yet I believe if we look closely, this story is not a mystery at all. It turns out to be central to understanding the life of our Lord and our lives. Let's pray. Living Word, we pray that you will open our eyes as we open the Word of God. Help us to understand what we read. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's spend a few minutes seeking to understand the transfiguration. According to Mark, and this begins with uh, 9, verse 2, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up into a high mountain where they were alone. And in their presence, he was transfigured, and his clothes became dazzlingly white, with a whiteness no bleacher on earth could equal. They saw Elijah appear, and Moses with them, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter spoke, Rabbi, how good it is we are here! Shall we make three shelters one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? For he did not know what to say. They were so terrified. And this is typical of Peter, isn't it? He sort of blurts out things without thinking. Jesus doesn't even respond. I keep thinking of a person we once had in a Sabbath school class who always blurted out things that didn't make sense. And we finally found out the answer was to say, thank you for your comment. Well, Jesus doesn't say that. But he just ignores it. And then we hear the voice. uh, Then a cloud appeared, casting a shadow over them. And out of the cloud came a voice. This is my son. Listen to him. And now suddenly when they looked around, there was nobody to be seen. But Jesus alone with themselves. On their way down the mountain, he enjoined them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They seized upon those words and discussed them among themselves, what this rising from the dead could mean. An old Greek painting, which we'll show you on the screen, attempts to capture the reality of this story. Or maybe I should say the truth of this story If you turn off the lights for just a second, you'll see a little bit better. Uh, Since the painting is done in a manner that is far from artistic realism, it's more than 400 years old. And this picture is strange to our modern Western eyes. We're thrown off by the lack of perspectives. And then we notice that all the events of the story are told at once. Jesus and his favorite disciples ascend the mountain on the left. The transfiguration takes the center of the picture, and then they descend the mountain on the right. It's all simultaneous. There's wonderful detail in the picture. Notice, for example, Peter. He's the old man with a gray beard. And if you're close, he's trying to make a speech. As he's fallen on the ground in astonishment, he's still talking. Despite his fear, he's trying to make a speech. You have Moses and Elijah. That's Moses on the right. That's Elijah on the left. There's a lot of layers of symbolism here. You could say Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Or if you take a suggestion that Ellen White makes in Desire of Ages, page 421. Now, Elijah represents those who are translated without seeing death. Moses represents those who are resurrected, the righteous resurrected ones. Now, I'll leave that picture up, although we probably need to turn the lights back on again. <clears throat> and we'll come back to the picture. At the top of the painting, by the way, on the right and the left of Jesus, you can see a little writing. And it simply says in Greek, the metamorphosis, another way of saying the transfiguration. Now, we come away from Mark's account with many questions. Why did Jesus' appearance suddenly change? What was he talking about with Moses and Elijah? Why was it important for Peter, James, and John to be witnesses? What does this episode have to do with the rest of the gospel? This story could almost be summarized as once when no one else was around, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus become dazzlingly bright. And you say, all right, what, why? What's the point? And how did the transfiguration fulfill Jesus' words about seeing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God come with power? Now, if we turn to the other Gospels, we find in Matthew 17 and Luke 9, there's some additional important information. According to Matthew, Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. The disciples fell on their faces in terror. We can see that in the picture, the sound of God's voice, and had to be persuaded to look up. And get to their feet by Jesus himself. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one, only Jesus. Luke says Moses and Elijah appeared in glory themselves, and their conversation with Jesus was about the Lord's departure and the destiny he was to fulfill in Jerusalem. Part of the time, according to Luke's account, the disciples were in a deep sleep and they awoke to find Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah already going on. Luke adds that the disciples kept silence and at the time told nobody anything of what they'd seen. All three writers, Luke, Mark, and Matthew, make the transfiguration a turning point in the life of Jesus a dramatic climax in their narratives. Each writer places a story just after the key questions, who do men say that I am? And you, who do you say that I am? The events on the mountaintop are somehow a revelation and a confirmation of Christ's ministry, comparable to his baptism and his ascension. In other words, the structure of the story tells us not to neglect the story. If this were a movie, the pacing, the timing, the background music would say, pay attention here. Something important is happening. If we may judge from their later writings, John and Peter were for the rest of their lives marked by their time on the mountain. When Peter was searching for strong evidence of the truth of the gospel, He remembered the transfiguration. In his second epistle, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, the old fisherman wrote these words It was not on tales artfully spun that we relied when we told you of the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. We saw him with our own eyes in majesty when, at the hands of God the Father, he was invested with honor and glory. And there came to him from the sublime presence a voice which said, This is my son, my beloved, on whom my favor rests. Underlining his point, Peter added, This voice from heaven we heard ourselves. When it came, we were with him on the sacred mountain. John is less direct simply saying in the first chapter of his gospel, so the word became flesh, he came to dwell among us, and we saw his glory. The only time either man saw Jesus in his glory or majesty was on the mountaintop, identified by tradition as Mount Tabor. The memory of that glory may have prepared John of the apocalyptic vision he had on the island of Patmos. If you turn to Revelation chapter 1, there's a description of Jesus that is startling. The Jesus that John describes is not the Galilean carpenter or the wandering rabbi John had traveled with for three years, the beloved friend of the Last Supper. The Jesus he sees in Revelation 1 standing among seven lamps of gold, had snow-white hair, flaming eyes, feet like burnished brass, and a voice like the sound of rushing waters. Just as on the mountaintop, his face shone like the sun in full strength, and just as for John fell at his feet as though dead, once again Jesus had to touch him and say, don't be afraid. Neither John nor Peter treated their experience of the mountaintop as a per, purely personal insight, a subjective vision that somehow transcended reality. And that is a clue, I think, that helps us understand the story. The transfiguration of Jesus was not a change in our Lord. For a few minutes, the disciples saw something that had been there all along. They saw Jesus as he really was. What was ordinarily hidden or muted or disguised was briefly revealed, and they were frightened out of their wits. We may need new words to describe such an experience. If what we see and sense around us is reality, small r. What do we call the events of Mount Tabor? Can we talk about reality with a capital R? At the Transfiguration, something breaks through everyday reality and leaves the disciples feeling that what they've seen is more real than what they usually experience. After the Transfiguration, small R reality seems incomplete that is shadowy or shrouded or somehow less real. Notice this is the opposite of what we usually describe as a deeply spiritual experience or a mystical experience. We often treat such an experience as a kind of beautiful dream and contrast it with the hard and vivid reality of waking up. For Peter, James, and John, it was not this way. As the King James Version puts it, and when they were awake, they saw his glory. Far from being an, halluc- an hallucination, in other words, the transfiguration was an eye-opening moment, the revelation of a more complete reality. Now, it's hard to understand all this. There's a powerful Old Testament story that makes the point better than I can. If you turn to 2 Kings 6, and we heard part of that uh, this morning in the scripture reading, there's an amazing story about Elisha and a conflict with Syria, beginning with verse 8. Once when the king of Aram was making war in Israel, he held a conference with his staff at which he said, I mean to attack in such and such a direction. But the man of God forewarned the king of Israel. Take care to avoid this place for the Arameans are going down this way. So the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had given him this warning and the king took special precautions every time he found himself near the place. The king of Aram was greatly perturbed at this point, summoning his staff and saying to them, tell me one of you who has betrayed us to the king of Israel. And the staff Simply responds, None of us, but Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedchamber. Now, the story goes on to tell us that the king, the enemy king, was a decisive man. He found out where Elisha was and he uh, mounted a special military operation. He sent his troops to the city of Dothan. And a strong force surrounded the city to capture the man who knew too much. Arriving at night, they surrounded the city, making escape impossible. Now, the passage you just heard in Scripture, according to the Bible, when Elisha's disciple rose early in the morning and went out, he saw a force with horses and chariots surrounding the city. Oh, master, he said, where are we to turn? Elisha answered, do not be afraid for those who are on our side are more than those on theirs. And then, it, then Elisha offered this prayer. "O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes and he saw the hills covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Maybe some of you remember the picture of that in Arthur Maxwell's Bible stories. Uh, Glorious, fiery chariots all around. And then the story goes on to describe a bloodless victory that ended these raids on Israel. Now, I would say this story helps us understand the later Elijah and Moses story, the transfiguration of Jesus. What happens in the Gospels, I think, is the same kind of event. A temporary lifting of the curtain so that more of reality is visible. Just like Elisha's disciples, Peter, James, and John have their eyes opened. They actually see a human being who is also God. They see their master transformed and glorious beyond anything they can imagine. The memory of Jesus' visible majesty will help carry him through the dark days ahead when their eyes will show them only a helpless, humiliated human being. That was only part of reality. He really had chariots of fire. At his command, or as he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, six legions of angels. That was the deeper reality. The story of Elisha and the invisible army has implications that go beyond Peter, James, and John. That temporary lifting of the curtain, that prayer that opens eyes, is available now to all of us as Christians. If our eyes were open this morning, we might see here in this place angels and archangels in the company of heaven. We might see if we were in the realm of full reality, Moses and Elijah and Enoch standing somewhere in this sanctuary. We have reason to believe, do we not? That Jesus himself, our resurrected Lord, is here even now at this moment. If you're tempted to believe that no one's here except us, consider the startling description of Christian worship found in Hebrews chapter 11, the very end of Hebrews. The passage beginning in verse 18. Remember where you stand, drawing a contrast between two holy mountains. We are not before Sinai with its blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, the trumpet blast and the oracular voice, which they heard and begged to hear no more, says the book of Hebrews. No, continues the text, you stand before Mount Zion and the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. And then the author of the book of Hebrews describes reality, capital R reality of Christian worship. And this reality is a powerful, transforming, even frightening reality. On this mountain, we want to fall on our faces, and we're not alone. We're surrounded, he says, by a glorious multitude, myriads of angels, the full concourse and assembly of the firstborn citizen of heaven, and God, judge of all, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, whose sprinkled blood has better things to tell than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse to hear the voice that speaks, the passage continues, We're referring to the inescapable voice of the one who speaks from heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 ends with a summary of Christian worship. What we are doing right now praise, prayer, hearing the word. The kingdom we are given, says Hebrews, is unshakable. Let us therefore give thanks to God. And so worship him as he should be worshipped with reverence and awe, for our God is a devouring fire. Now this applies not just to corporate worship, like what we're doing here. It also applies to private worship, to prayer, to the personal time we spend worshipping our powerful God. As one very important writer has written, prayer means turning to reality. So that personal prayer, like what the disciples experienced on the mountain, like what Elisha's servant saw, all of that is a turning to reality. Remember where you stand. Now, we do sometimes forget where we stand. Humankind cannot bear very much reality, wrote the poet T.S. Eliot. Perhaps he was right. We cannot sustain for long the insights of the Mount of Transfiguration, or we need regular reminders, maybe. We're not able always to be thinking about the myriads of angels, the chariots of fire, or our master's face shining like the sun in full strength. The heavenly voice stops echoing, and it is time for us to go down the mountain, pondering what we have seen and heard. Jesus still stands unmoving at the center of the old painting, his shining white robe surrounded by green and gold and symbols of God's glory. The disciples lie in fear at his feet and awe, amazed by the reality God is revealing to them. That powerful word, metamorphosis, stands over the scene. Both in the picture and on the mountain, the change, the metamorphosis, showed Jesus as he really was. It confirmed his mission and his claim to be the Son of God, but it also showed John and James and Peter what they could become Look around you. As C.S. Lewis has reminded us, there are no ordinary people. Nations, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal. They eventually die. We are meant to last forever. It's God's plan to turn you and the person next to you and everyone here into an everlasting splendor, a creature which shares in the glory of its creator. Every day we're either moving closer to that goal or farther away from it. We started with Mark's account of the Transfiguration, asking what this story meant. We end this morning recognizing that Metamorphosis, a complete change, complete healing, complete transformation, can be our experience and will eventually be our experience. We can climb Mount Tabor, the Mount of Transfiguration, every Sabbath. In Christian worship and personal prayer, our eyes can be opened to the deepest reality. Think of the old song. Open my eyes that I may see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, Spirit divine. As we bow before our awesome God, We can learn that worship is metamorphosis, that the devouring fire is also a transforming fire. In that sense, the words of the gospel apply right now here in Crestline. I tell you this there are some sitting here today who will not taste death death before they've seen the kingdom of God already come in power.